the Triathlon Show 405. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Stefan Sölkner. Stefan is a national team coach of Austria's elite and under-23 men's cycling teams. This interview is a classic training talk where we cover a wide range of topics, including a lot of them specifically regarding amateur cyclists and endurance athletes in general. Just a quick reminder before we get into the interview that the registration for our 2024 training camp in Mallorca is now open. You can find all the information on our website. You can go directly to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca, or you can just find it through the link in the episode description i'll talk a bit more about this after the interview also big thanks to our sponsors form the form smart swim goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens including splits pace stroke rate and heart rate form have recently launched a big and important update which is an integration with training peaks so that workouts written in training peaks can automatically sync to the form app and the goggles this works even with swims that are just in written form not in a workout builder in training peaks and this makes life super easy for you you or for your coach you can just load the workout on your goggles and then you will be guided through it step by step you can get 15% off the goggles with the code tts15 on formswim.com forward slash tts and thank you to senate the senate indoor swim trainer allows you to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even when you're short on time it's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool and it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming like your catch and your power and isolate them more easily than you can in the water you can try the senate risk-free for up to 30 days so if you don't love it just send it back and you can get 20 percent off your first order on senatesuntra.com for slash tts now without any further ado here's the interview with stefan selkner welcome to that triathlon show stefan how are you doing fine you um thanks for the invitation and i'm really happy to be on your podcast today yeah, it's going to be an uh, interesting chat, I'm sure. So let's start with an introduction. Tell us more about who you are. Um, my name is Stefan. I'm currently living in Vienna and I'm working as, as a coach and sports director for the men and men under 23 road cycling national team. And besides that, like a lot of coaches, I'm running a small coaching business with two fellow coaches and we are doing like typically training prescription training analysis and also some some lab testing besides that and yeah i'm doing the the coaching and sports director job with the men elite team the first year now and beside before that i was working with the junior national team um yeah my way into cycling was a bit not so typically i would say i'm originally coming from from winter sports like many Austrian athletes are coming, also the, the cyclists. And I was doing Nordic combined. So it's ski jumping and cross-country skiing. And during my studies, I did a master's degree in sports science. I came more into cycling and was always interested in cycling. And then I started racing myself for two to three years, but not with the goal to get the professional cyclist, but just to get some more insights into the sport. And yeah. Here am I, still in the cycling world, and I think it will be a longer journey there. I'm not <laughs> planning to to skip sky cycling and go back to winter sports in the near future. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Uh, Nordic combined is definitely a, a an interesting combination there with the ski jumping and and uh, cross country skiing. Um, one question I have about your role in the national team is because most of the of the athletes they they would generally race for for teams and then national teams come into play in things like the world championships that we just had in glasgow so so what is your role at is it is it more in the championship races like the world championships and the olympics and things like that that you are uh, involved and then it's things like selections and so on uh, or are you more directly involved as well with the uh, with the riders or is that handled with within their own teams and with their own coaches mm, that's a bit the difference in the under 23 and the professional cyclists because um the national teams are not 
really involved into the training prescriptions of the pros because nearly all all teams have their own performance staff, their own performance teams. So we are not really into that. There it's more, like you mentioned, um, doing the nominations for the for the big events, for some stage races we are doing, but mostly for European World Championships and Olympic next year. And yeah, it's somehow more a management position or a lot of management stuff there. And of course, also doing um, the races there as a sports director and making sure the, the surroundings and the, the setup is as good as po- possible to to keep the keep the um the flow high in the team and make good results and with the under 23 team it's a bit different because they are also more in contact with the with the with the coaches um many teams also have some have their own performance staff and coaches right now and it's getting more and more so it's a lot of discussions and cooperations between different coaches and and us and yeah you always have to make sure that the riders are in good hands i would say so i'm not doing the training prescription for the complete under 23 team but i'm involved in a few of them and with the others it's more like having an an holistic view and then insight in the training and making sure training process is going well and if we could help each other we're doing it or trying to do it Interesting. So uh, let's dive into some coaching and training related topics. So first, if you want to start with uh, the probably most difficult question, if you can give an overview of your coaching philosophy and methodology. It's good that you're saying it's it's a difficult question because on the first view, it's it sounds easy, but I think it's really hard to answer. Um, I would say I would I don't have any any clear coaching philosophy like. For example, I can't say that I'm more into polarized training or more in the threshold threshold training because I'm like I like to plan um, completely dependent on the athlete's specificity and their physiological profile, but also of course the main part um, which needs to be considered when doing training prescription is or are the demands of the goal event or the target you are. You're targeting and <clears throat> the important races. So, if I plan a season, for example, or just prepare a season, I will just look at the specific demands of the event and compare it with the physiological profile, the strength and weaknesses of the athletes. And from there on, you can do your periodization and complete planning of the season. As you know, you can do it in advance, but you need to consider so many things and you're switching <laughs> nearly from week to week. So it's really hard to stick stick to a, a yearly plan, I would say. But I think it's very important to have to have a plan for a year and adapt then according from week to week or even day to day to it. But yeah, I would say it's not like I have one, one coaching philosophy or methodology. Um, one thing you often hear for for sure is that doing the basics right, and that's also a point which I'm telling most of my athletes, because I've not seen a lot of athletes where this actually is completely done right. So there is always some some basic things you can improve, and if those things are not on a high level, it's really hard to to focus on small details. And especially in juniors and under 23 cyclists or also triathletes for sure. It's more about doing all basics as good as possible before overfocus on the smaller details. Can you give an example of uh, that comes to mind of when somebody has not been doing the basics right and, and what you did to correct that? I think the most important thing with the basics i said is not the training itself it's more the things around training so getting nutrition right getting sleep right getting enough food enough sleep and also good sleep i think those things are nearly or for sure as same as important as as the training itself but here are some things or it often happens that those things are not right even if the training 
itself is done pretty good. But yeah, that's just one point in the training process. And the other points also have to do, have to be done in, in a good and high quality way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into some more details. And uh, yeah, first, if we discuss, uh, it's one, one of the most challenging things, of course, is to find the balance of uh, an appropriate training load that is a good stimulus, but is not too much so that you can actually adapt to it uh how yeah what, what are your thoughts around how to how to find that balance i think it nearly all of that depends also on the on the body feeling of the athlete so i don't like to plan like um complete patterns with recovery i don't like to do for example three weeks on and one recovery week i do it more like recovery on demand so i'm in close contact with all of my athletes and what i would what i am doing then in training is to to act according to that so if they're feeling they need a bit of rest or they need more rest i will give them one two even three four five days off but i'm not doing that like planning in advance to do three weeks progressing training load and then one week of deload i think um if you do it like that you skip a lot of potential um, adaptions and it's also hard to plan in advance that you need one week off after exactly three weeks on so i do it more maybe in the general preparation phase but during race phase it's not <laughs> at least from my experience it's not working like that so yeah depends a lot of the of the actual feeling of the athlete yeah do you use anything else uh, any other metrics than the feeling of the athlete like do you use heart rate variability or resting heart rate things like that or is it mostly just based on the subjective feedback mm, it's depending on the athlete i'm working with uh, with resting heart rate for example and heart rate variability but not with all athletes some of them like to do it some of them don't like to do it i uh, usually don't do it with athletes that have a really good feeling of their own body and can tell me exactly when they need um, rest or more rest and others you sometimes have some problems with athletes when they are not telling you that they actually feel tired and they like to train too much and all the time so if i recognize that athletes tend to do it i will talk with them and we we introduce such such methods like like heart rate variability also that they get a bit of a better understanding how their body and recovery functions but i'm not doing it with all and i'm also not telling every athlete you need to track it all the time so it's a bit dependent on psychological things and also the kind of athlete you're dealing with yeah and and you said that yeah you don't have a like particular you're not bound to polarized training or threshold training in particular but if we discuss a little bit uh with the let's say the harder workouts in the program when would you use things like like high intensity intervals when would you use threshold work when would you use uh, do you use tempo work even lt1 work that sort of thing can you give uh, basically give a bit of an overview of of what athletes what physiological profiles or maybe what race demands uh, would require certain types of workouts okay yeah i'm doing a lot of this um in regard to the race demand so for example i also have some some triathletes which are doing long distance and you don't really need to go above ltp2 or vt2 into an ironman so depending on that i'm planning um the yearly plan and doing for example more a specific word close to the event so there's a lot of tempo and <clears throat> work between ltp1 and ltp2 done in the weeks leading to the event and i will do for example with those athletes some high intensity intensity work um, during winter or during spring and as closer the, the main event is coming i'm focusing more on the actual demands of the race and if you compare it to cycling for example like if we talk about the world championships which happened last week in glasgow i don't know if you saw some races there but it was like a completely was like crit racing it was a lot of sprints a lot of cornering a lot of high intensity intervals if i would plan for for that event i would do it like the complete opposite way i would focus more 
on extensive or sub submaximal sessions in the early part of the season to, to build that aerobic engine and as closer the event is coming, I will focus more on the specific demands. For example, like that there are 49 corners um, per 15 kilometer lap. So in the main elite race, it was more than 500 sprints accumulated during the six hours of races. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to just train tempo and long base rides without any sprints or without any anaerobic efforts leading into that event or into the race. Yeah. And do, do you ever, at, is, is there a point where the athlete's physiological profile or their strengths and weaknesses play into what kind of uh, work you would be given them? Mm, definitely. But if we talk about cycling, the the profile of the rider also um, is influencing the race calendar. So if you talk about sprinters, for example, you won't try to get a sprinter to to be um, really, really well, to perform really, really well in the mountains because that won't work because his physiological profile and his genetics um, will not make that happen. But if we can... If we talk about, for example, triathlon and long distance triathlon, of course, I would like to, of course, I'm planning the, the training prescription according to the profile of the athlete. So depending where his strengths and where his weaknesses are, the training process is a bit different. It's not completely different. But yeah, if you do some lab testing and some infield testing, you get a profile. And according to that, I'm planning planning the training of the of the athlete can you give one example of what what the test results might say and then what the training intervention might be yeah for example <clears throat> if you have an athlete who is really good and in the anaerobic part or also has a, a high aerobic engine and a high view to max but his um, metabolic fitness or for example his is not really efficient then the training needs to be completely different to to another guy who has not a high view to max for example but is already pretty efficient on, on longer distances and if i have an athlete for example with a high view to max and a bad efficiency and you he will wants to perform in long distance races i will not do a lot of high intensity work i will do a lot of um, work which is close to threshold or even below and also a lot of work between LT1 and VT1 just to build that efficiency in the in the race demand or in the in the zone that is demanded in the race just to get that <coughs> out of it. And also, if we talk about cyclists, it's important to always have the f physiological profile in mind and compare it to the to the targets of the athlete and also the races which which are on the plan for the year. And uh, how often within a week would you uh, would you prescribe these like harder workouts? Whether it could be anything from uh, tempo, uh, even long LT one efforts up to to high intensity intervals or sprints. Uh, how how often within the week do you do that? And uh, what is the balance basically between harder workouts and just easy riding, aerobic riding? It's really dependent on on the time of the year you're in, because if you are during the year. Um, and a lot of racing is done. The races, of course, are also a, a great training stimulus. And in the racing season, I'm trying to, <clears throat> or it's really, really important to not do too much and to to do a lot of um, hard training in between the races, because otherwise the training will not, or the training stimulus, you won't get adapted to it. And if we talk about normal training weeks, like in the general preparation phase, I would do about um, two to maximum three harder sessions a week. But like you talked about, I always say it's a harder session, even if it's between LT1 and LT2, and not just above LT2. So it's also could be a really hard session depending on on the duration and the other training sessions. If it's between LT1 and some tempo. Um, you also have to see it like like a hard interval session because most of the time you're spending a lot of zone in there. You're <clears throat> burning a lot 
of calories in kilojoules. So it's a hard, it has a hard impact on the body and also on the adaption. But in general, I would say in a normal training week, I would two to maximum three harder workouts per week. And the rest is pretty, pretty easy and basic. Yeah. And, and when you're in, with cyclists especially that have a large number of racing days per year when they're in the racing season and what how yeah can you talk about how you manage the balance in a in a bit more detail especially if we're talking they might be doing some kind of stage race so it's basically one week of uh, many of the stages might be quite hard depending on the 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 event and the and the rider's role of course but um but yeah how how do you then train between that stage race and possibly the next stage race or the next uh one day event or classic or whatever you have coming up without yeah without without doing too much but still getting enough of a stimulus i think one problem that i see especially in under 23 cyclists they're doing a lot of easy hours um of course during winter and spring but during the season um some training prescription lacks a bit of easy sessions so they always want to be in top shape for for every race and every stage race but it's the easy trainings and the base rides are a bit missing in there so um if you have a lot of race days i'm actually not doing too much high intensity work in between there and trying to get um some easy hours in there according to the to the events but if you race, for example, 10 to 15 days in in a time span of one month, which was the case a lot of times this year, also in the under 23 cyclists and not, not only in contours with the, with the pros, it's really hard to, to get some, some longer, easy rides in there. And some coaches try to fit some, some harder sessions in between the, the different stage races or races. And I think that's sometimes a big problem because you're missing training hours and if you do it like that it often happens that the, the athletes are a bit of burnt out during the season and just performing well in the first part of the season but performance is declining in the course of the season so depending on the race days but i'd like to do a lot of easy sessions also between bigger races and don't which is another big point um don't taper down completely between between all races because if you're doing that you're losing a lot of performance gains and you can't be in top shape um every weekend or every race itself yeah so you'd basically uh, you choose the races that you that are the the absolute most important ones and taper more for them but between some races you would be happy to would you basically prescribe normal training volume with quite a lot of easy riding but if it's not a a race that is the the main target that you're going into yeah exactly because most of races are anyway way harder than a normal um harder session you're doing in training and yeah if you do for example 60 to 70 races between march and september or october that's has a huge impact on on the all other training sessions and also on the recovery so yeah if you do 60 to 70 races you can't train hard during the week so you always have to keep that in mind and focus on a few bigger events and just see other races as as a learning process or even as normal as a training block for example and you can't treat every every race like like the yearly highlight or a race yeah um what is your view on strength training within cycling yeah <laughs> that's a tough question um yeah literature shows um, some benefits some papers show that there isn't a big effect um i think if it's perfectly done and done like um the theoretical point of view says you can have some performance gains but the problem in cycling is the race days which i talked before because you have so many race days it's in the real world it's really hard to fit it in during the racing season so yeah it doesn't make sense to just train strength um during during the off season or during the winter and then skip it completely during the season because yeah, there's also a good pretty new paper out there that shows after eight weeks of skipping 
our strength training, the complete performance improvements are gone again. So yeah, if you train from, let's say, November to, to April or March and get some, some good benefits in there, they are completely gone after six to eight weeks. So that's the main problem. Um, if it's possible to fit it in during the racing season, I would also do it with some athletes. But if it's clear that there is no chance of doing at least a bit of strength training every week or every 10 days to just maintain that the performance gains, I also tend to skip it during during the off-season or general preparation phase. Yeah. Do you think it makes more sense for amateurs that don't have the large number of racing days that the professionals and under-23 cyclists do? Depending on their, if they are amateurs, on their weekly time budget, I would say. I also don't like to, to skip two, two normal training days um, to get some strength training in. But if there is some time and time budget allows it to get, for example, one to two week, one to, one to two sessions in per week, I would, I would do it, yes. Because then you know, it's also easier to do it during the season and to maintain those, those performance gains yeah and uh i know that as part of your master's uh degree or master's thesis you worked with uh, muscle oxygen saturation so can you just briefly uh discuss what what that work was about and if uh, smo2 is something that you use today in your coaching practice uh yeah so we did the study with uh, i think it was 15 athletes um, that came in out into our lab six times. So it was, there were a lot of tests involved and we measured the, the muscular oxygen saturation on the musculus vastus lateralis. And <clears throat> we did that during cycling on a stationary, um, ergometer and recorded there. <clears throat> or we did a spear ergometry. And of course, we also collected, um, how do we say, um, yeah power output and of course the the heart rate and we did two different um great ramp exercise tests with 60 and 90 rpm and from that we calculated the three different intensity zones we did a moderate a heavy on the severe domain and then we did um like two protocols one time with 60 one time with 90 rpm and all three intensity domains. And we used it to compare the muscular oxygen saturation from 60 to 90 RPM in the different different intensity zones. And also to, to check the, the reliability of the testing and the measurement itself. So yeah, of course you get a measurement error and some variation if you do the exact 10 tests for and two times with the different cadences and what what we um, saw was that it doesn't really matter if it's 60 or 90 rpm the muscular oxygen saturation is pretty much the same or at least there is not a significant um, difference between those as far as i have in mind the the measurement error or the difference between the tests was only about two to three percent but yeah you don't actually know if it's the measurement error from the from the device itself or if it's some physiological difference and yeah it's it's a pretty interesting tool i would say but it also has some some methodological issues which you need to deal with and therefore i'm not really using it during training or also during during lab testing um like other coaches are doing but i think the main problem is that you're just measuring um, the muscular oxygen saturation, for example, on on one muscle. So it's just a short a short view of one one location on one specific muscle, and it's not um, representing the the complete physiological reaction of of the body to to the according intensity. So it's a bit hard to deal with, and even if it's measured correctly i can't really say what i would do in training with it so if i would change something because of that so i don't see a real benefit for for the real training out there 
All right. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I've had a, a few conversations about uh, muscle oxygen saturation with some people, and and uh, it's definitely like the consensus seems to be that yeah, it's still there are definitely limitations but some people have been a bit more positive so it's it's good to hear also the other side of it and and why yeah there yeah well the arguments against basically and and I personally i have been playing around with it a little bit so definitely i don't know enough about it yet to really draw any conclusions but my instinct mm-hmm. is that uh it's yeah it, my instinct is a bit the same as you like i'm i'm not I'm not really looking into it too much just because it seems uh, that it from my initial testing that that I'm not really getting that much value from it. But I also realized that part of that is because I'm not an expert enough in it, but you have done a lot of work in it. So that's a a very different scenario. You can kind of talk to it from a position of uh, of expertise. So so that's interesting. Yeah. And also like we did it with... uh... So in a complete standardized environment with with a tool that it's just used during during cycling in the lab because it can't really be used outside because there is no no live um, view of the data like for example with some some other things um, and the device we are we used is like I think twenty times more expensive than the the ones you can buy for for the use at home and it's this device is also. <coughs> way more sensitive to to data changes and the devices out there um, i don't say any names there but the reliability and the measurement error as far as i know is often a bit too high to to use it really for for some insights because if you can see some changes for example like muscular oxygen saturation is higher three to four or five percent you don't know if it's just an improvement in performance or physiological values or if it's just a measurement error. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm always, you always have to keep that in mind. And I don't like to use tools, which I, if you can't be completely sure about the, about the data that is delivered to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving on a bit to a section about uh, some uh, questions specific for uh, amateur athletes. So, I guess to start with, what are the main differences uh, between for you when you coach amateur athletes versus professionals or elite under twenty threes? What what would be the main differences in in coaching and in training? I think the main <clears throat> difference is the time budget of amateur athletes. So most of them, of course, are not full time athletes like like professional cyclists or professional athletes, and therefore you have to plan your um, their the training around their time budget or their weekly schedule and you just can't fit 20 hours of training in there if they just have time for 10 to 12 hours for example so i think that's the main determinant of the of the training prescription in an amateur athlete and how do you deal with with that how yeah how how does that then impact how you plan your training when you have less time available uh yeah one problem i often see is like the athletes are telling me they have 12 hours of training. Um, they have place for tra- 12 hours of training per week. But if you look at their detailed schedule or they send you their, them their, their detailed schedule, you see that their, these 10 or 12 hours are fitting in just like if any other part is um, decompromised a bit. So then they're sleeping one hour less because they want to train one hour before work, for example. And I think that's that's a really big problem because it's not about doing the training and um, doing 10 or 12 hours of training. You also have to keep in mind that you need to adapt to the training and you need a, um, enough recovery time between the sessions. And amateur athletes often have a lot of different life, life stressors compared to, to professional ones. And yeah, especially if you also have family or kids and a tight working schedule you also have to keep in mind that it's not only about doing the training but also making time to recover from it and yeah it's not about only doing the training to see you have done the training load per week you have um this and that fitness which i don't like to to use for my training prescription but a lot of amateur athletes tend to you tend to look at the at the values on training peaks, for example, and think 
if their fitness value is actually going up, their real world fitness is also going up, but that's not how training and adaption to it works. Yeah. So if somebody is is trained, they have realistically they have uh, eight to ten hours, or let's say to train. Would you do any changes in I don't know doing the easy rides like a little bit more higher zone two, or would you do a bit more intensity as a proportion to the overall training, or would you just treat it pretty much the same as you would in terms of how the easy rides should be done and how often you would do more intense workouts and not really change things? It's just a basically scaled down version of uh what people with more bigger time budgets would would do i think you can't completely scale it down because um training different training stimulus is not leading to it the, the same training adaption so i like to keep one day of the week really long and easy if possible so there is absolutely no um nothing intense in there it's all under ltp1 and of course i will like to try it to get this day in on the weekend because most of the time that's just how it works in real life and during the week i try to get most of the times also two harder sessions in there and if they only have time for example for 90 to 120 minutes for a base ride i prescribe them maybe a bit higher just to get a bit more training stimulus in then then the rights i would prescribe for professional athletes which are of course not two hours during the week but also can be four to five six hours during the week but in general i would not prescribe more harder sessions due to that so i wouldn't say that you need to do four to five times a hard interval session just because you have only eight to ten hours to train per week uh, i also keep that most of the times two to a maximum of three other days and i will keep the other sessions pretty pretty low in intensity mm. one one thing that i think um at least in triathlon i'm less familiar with cycling that is very underrated i think among amateurs is the the parts of race performance that are not just uh power so in in the cycling component so things like yeah, in, the, in triathlon, the biggest one would be to just get a lot of speed in usually in a straight line for their power, so aerodynamics. And uh, but there's a bit of bike handling skill depending on which race you go to. And of course, in cycling, there's a, a whole lot more uh, bike handling skills, positioning and tactics, uh, and and so on. So, uh, how how big a part does that play a role? Do you think in the in the training, I mean, is that something that you have conversations about with your athletes and you have them go out and do group rides for bike handling and that sort of thing? Or what, what is your take on that? I think it's still overlooked in, in cycling and also in triathlon. So it's not our goal to to produce as many, as a high power output as possible um, and to produce as much watt as possible during a race. So it's always the goal to go the fastest as possible from a to b that's our goal and you can't just look about on on the power output because power output is not listed on the result list in the finish afterwards so you can see your time there but not how many how many how you high how high your power output was so you always have to keep in mind that you need to go from a to b as fast as possible and you can always improve also some other parts like you said aerodynamics in time trialing or triathlon but also the the normal um position on the road bike for example there are also big differences in, in aerodynamics and also for example in cornering descending positioning in the bunch it's such a big such a big part of of the sport and of course also the technological part and the different kinds of of bikes of of wheel sets um the position on the bike or also the which gets more and more attention the different kinds of fabrics of the speed suits for example which is especially important in time trialing and you can do so much thing with that um you can't do the these improvements in for example one year of time span with um but you can do it with a few bike fits and some improvements also on the on the technique side to just get faster from from a to b yeah do you do you prescribe any kind of 
training that is geared towards let's say speed or bike handling or any of these components or is it more through conversations that you discuss the importance of it and then the athlete make sure that they practice bike handling during the regular sessions and and then maybe you have periodical uh, error tests or things like that or how does it work uh yeah i think the the most important things like positioning in a bunch in cycling races and also cornering and descending you just can't really train them in training of course you can do group rides but i think the best way is just to race and to start racing pretty early and to do as many races as possible even if you're or especially if you have a quite high <clears throat> physiological level but you're bad on this side i would step a bit away from from training and just get as much much experience as possible get as much races in as possible and just see the races as training itself and not as as a race but yeah of course you can also do bigger group rides but it's also you also have to keep in mind that cycling on open roads is even more dangerous than cycling in races and it's not too easy to practice um fast descending or cornering on on normal roads yeah it's a bit it's a bit hard yeah yeah it is definitely true that that is it's a it's it's really a challenge um if you could give three pieces of advice uh to amateur athletes listening to this interview uh what would that be uh don't overcomplicate overcomplicate little things and don't focus too much on details um like i mentioned in the beginning of the podcast with do the basics right even if you heard it a lot for sure but just can't overemphasize it and then i would say sleep sleep and eat more especially eat more i see a lot of athletes which are just not fueling properly especially for harder sessions and then are a bit worried about the, the outcome of the session and they couldn't deliver the power but if you really want to do a high quality high intensity session you also need to fuel your body in advance properly for it and it just doesn't work if you if you're low on carbohydrates in advance for example and another point i would say is like listen to your body even if you recall a lot of different metrics and data for example resting heart rate and heart rate variability if the the things or the the data doesn't fit with the feeling of the body i would always um, put more emphasis on the on the feeling of your body and not not on the data that is shown so if you don't feel like training today or don't feel like you can do the heart session do it on the next day maybe skip the training session and don't try to force yourself if you're not feeling feeling that yeah for sure i mean that's like body feel and and mind feel that could become data if you do a like a poms or a delta questionnaire then so if if for some athletes that absolutely have to have data for everything then maybe that's something to look into but because yeah that that body feel would normally correlate with um a poor score in in a questionnaire like that um but moving moving back to some more again general coaching and some science questions as well uh first um with your nordic combined background is there something that you think that you've brought into cycling from from that background that is maybe not so common in in cycling normally but that you have brought with with that knowledge and an experience that you have and nordic combined is like a complete it consists of two um, kind of sports that are complete different. So on the other side, you need to be, uh, you have, need to be really, how to say, you need to have a high, a high max power and a high force development for, for jumping. And you don't need any endurance for, for ski jumping, for example. And yeah, cross country skiing is like the complete opposite. And it's always hard to, to plan the concurrent strength and endurance training because you have to do it during learning combined skiing. Otherwise it's not working. And yeah, that's like one part, which is <laughs> it's needed in this kind of sport, but in cycling it's like strength training often is like, yeah, we can't do it. But if you maybe treat it like in Nordic combined skiing where you need to do it, otherwise you, 
will just not be able to to perform in ski jumping um it's also working so if we would have would treat that like that in in cycling or for example in for the sprinters in cycling i think it actually would work a bit better during the season also but that's just the point of view on things and the importance of things you're giving them so i think that would be would be one point yep and uh is there something that you're currently uh, learning about, focusing on, or are excited about within the coaching slash training slash science realm? I think you're learning all the time, especially um, in the real world. If you are at a lot of races and a lot of training camps, you always see some little things that you can can improve during your coaching process, or also during the years you're working as a coach. You always think see something new also with the with the interaction with the athletes themselves um you're learning so much different things and you're getting more and more insights how this this is working and that is working in practice and of course there are also a lot of new new topics out there um which are are really popular right now and at the moment i try to work a lot of to do a lot of um training with heat stress or heat sessions so that is definitely a topic which i dived into in the last two years i would say but also right now so you also learn a lot of things when you prescribe that to the athletes um try to reproduce some some papers maybe in real life with some athletes that are open to it and you get so much feedback from the athletes that you can just improve yourself as a coach and also the interaction with the athlete and other athletes. So with, with the heat training, have you been following the the, pro, uh, the protocols that Ben Trenestad and his group have been doing for increased hemoglobin mass? Yes. Um, I tried to do this one. I think it's 25 sessions in a time span of about five to six weeks, if I'm right. Um, yeah, I tried that with with some athletes and yeah that's like for example it sounds really nice and also the the performance improvements are nice but not all, all athletes are open to it because those heat sessions are also pretty <coughs> tough for your mind and you also have to you can can only do it with athletes that are really open to it and motivated for it so i wouldn't um prescribe that to athletes that are not 100% sure they want to do this block because otherwise it's pretty senseless. Yeah. So, but in the, so, so when is, is that your go-to protocol or have you developed past that a bit based on the experience that you have? No, I'm just following the same protocol that kind of started with the five weeks and five, five sessions per week. But I'm also doing just a lot of work for heat acclimatization and here i'm trying to do some own protocols that haven't been prescribed in the literature so i just adapted the things which i read and also with the feedbacks of the athlete and uh, and is there an area within sports science that has been uh, particularly useful for you in practical application as a coach uh, other than what you already mentioned with heat training yeah um i think the retrospective papers um about training intensity distributions i look um, at a lot of those and i think it just emphasizes the fact how many easy hours or how high the percentage of of pro athletes is and in in time in zone one for example i think we try to or tend to forget that nearly 80 to 90 percent is really um below ltp1 and if you have a look on those papers, you see how easy most of the professional athletes are, are training in the real world. So, yeah, of course, we're missing a lot of longitudinal studies there. And there is not so much work where that um, really compares different training periodizations or training plans over a long period of time. At least not with professional athletes, but if you have a look on studies that analyze trainer training data um over a long period of time you can have good insights on how how the best of the world really really train 
But of course, that doesn't tell us if that's the right way or if it can't be done better. But you get get some nice insights on how it works pretty well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, is there an area within sports science that you think is kind of trendy and maybe a lot very talked about and popular popularized but but it's either not very useful in practice or or it's often applied incorrectly or just generally misunderstood mm. yeah if you have a look on the papers on high altitude training there's always some also some gap between the the research and the real world because yeah research is showing that if you do a, a block in, in high altitude at least from what i know um the Additional performance improvements are also just lasting not for a long period of time if you are down to base levels again. But if you look at real world, a lot of professional athletes are are doing blocks in in altitude and doing blocks um, more of more than one time a year. And as far as I know, especially the Norwegian triathletes are spending a lot of time in altitude compared to cyclists i think they are up there for more than two to three months a year or even more i think you know it better but that's some some gap in in um yeah in the papers and theoretical side and research and uh, the real world practice but maybe that's just also like this because we're missing data from from this um loads of high altitude trainings and we're just comparing for example one block of of altitude training with normal training yeah no that's a very interesting topic and i, I discussed it a bit with when i interviewed ben Tenenstad, and uh, i guess he was a bit reluctant to uh, to go any further than what has been uh, actually studied in re- in research but i i do agree that in the real world it seems that uh, yeah it seems that there's a, a gap as you say between between science and and the re- real world um and final question before the rapid fire questions what advice advice would you give to young riders that have ambitions to make it to the professional levels in cycling i would say um try to race as much as possible during junior years and just collect as much race experience you can get and also in training process i would say i wouldn't be afraid of training too much because a lot of junior coaches, at least from my point of view, are still a bit, um, yeah, they think if you train too much, you can't develop further or any further. But like the development is now and younger and younger kids um, are getting pro contracts, you need to train pretty much, um, yeah, a lot during your your younger years and junior years if you really really want to to make it to the top and you have to keep in mind that without the appropriate training load and training stimulus it will be a a hard way but yeah i would be not too afraid of doing like i said too many too much training but be a bit um yeah keep in mind that too much intensity is like probably a bigger problem than too much training hours in total so keep it easy and do a lot of um, training volume but don't over focus on too much intensity and too much also on the data and power power output during training yeah otherwise you won't have fun um training for for the next 10 to 20 years as a professional cyclist if you make it into the, the pro ranks also yeah and what are your thoughts on the whole early specialization uh debate yeah it's hard because on the other side i know that it's not the best way and not the right development but somehow you need to train a lot now in the early early part of your career otherwise you won't just have no no chance to get to get into the pro ranks because yeah, if you are not on a really high level in under 23 or juniors the ch- chances are really really little that you you will make it uh, as a pro cyclist so <laughs> that's a bit of a pity that it's not working the way around and you can plan like really long term and have a long-term development plan 
what I also would prefer, but the real world uh, tends to go in the other direction. So it's maybe not the best development for the sport, but I guess we need to go with time and we don't really have a, a choice at the moment. That's that's a bit of a problem. Yeah, yeah, I think it, it looks quite similar in, in triathlon. Uh, but yeah, th- that's it's a very hard question. Maybe that's the hardest question of the of the entire interview, actually, because it's um, there are good arguments for and against it. But um, yeah, the, the real world also tends to show what's what's needed in each sport. But let's move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? <laughs> I don't have a single one, but I would say just try to get as much information and as much insights into the sport from a holistic view. Just combine um, insights from from practice, from research, from papers, from discussions, podcasts, um, and other professional athletes or professional coaches and just combine it. And over the years, you will get a good overview and holistic view into a lot of different insights and what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically professionally or personally Mm. that it's good to combine some some patterns or repeat some patterns for example if you have had a good race and just try to repeat the the training sessions you did leading into that for example the last week or the last days and it will also help you psychologically and who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you i can't mention a a concrete person but i would say i just i'm just inspired about people that are really really passionate for for something and doesn't matter if it's sports or anything else but which are spending a lot of time to to go after their passion and really um, focus their life on something yeah and uh, where can people follow you and and find you um you can follow me on on twitter or on instagram um with my normal name stefan Sölkner. and you can also follow our coaching business which i'm doing with my two colleagues that is called ausdauerwerkstatt that's so that's yeah, if you translate it to english it would mean something like endurance factory yeah uh i'll link to all of that in the in the show notes so people can can find it and uh yeah well we connected through twitter and uh, you do post some some really good stuff there so so it's a good good follow for those that are on twitter uh thank you so much stephanie it was great to have you on and hope to talk to you again soon thank you thank you for the invitation I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com with relevant links, including a couple of uh, episodes that we mentioned here. Ben Trennestad, who was on in episode 386. And uh, regarding muscle oxygen saturation, my best recommendation is to uh, listen to my interview with Jem Arnold in episode 358. So I'll link to those two episodes in the episode description and in the show notes. Next Monday, I have the pleasure to be joined by my fellow scientific triathlon coach, Lachlan Kirin, on the podcast. We discuss coaching, so things like who is coaching for, who is it not for, what to look for in a coach, how to find the right coach for you. And we go into a number of other questions and topics, including things like the future of coaching and AI and answer listener questions on the topic as well. Uh, I think it is a very interesting discussion that we had. I've already recorded it. So I hope that you tune in for that one. And uh, as I said, I'll talk a bit more about the Mallorca training camp now that we have opened registration for it. Uh, The dates for this camp is going to be the 13th to the 20th of April 2024. And I could list a number of reasons why I think it's uh, such a great camp and why I think that you should uh, come and join us. But maybe instead of me telling you about why you should sign up, I would encourage you to just go to scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca or you can find it easily through the uh, menu on the website and just read all of the testimonials that we have from participants of our previous camps and that will give you a wide-ranging perspective of all the reasons to join just to give a one short example uh, one of the participants said quote it was simply fantastic the setup with coaches and guides the people the resort the food the island and the weather a memorable week and i can't wait to do it again already end quote 
So if you're interested in uh, experiencing some of this, then uh, check out the webpage scientifictriathlon.com forward slash Mallorca and follow the instructions there to register or email me directly on michael at scientifictriathlon.com. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate and heart rate, advanced post-swim analysis, and use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form smart swim goggles. And thank you to Sen8. Use the Sen8 swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Sen8 workout done that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Sen8 risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order on sen8swimtraining.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.